welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. Uh, and that congested voice you hear, that would be me. Uh, not sick, no, despite the fact that it's the holidays. Uh, it's just December in Austin, which means that it was 83 degrees out today. Um, oh, I, I hate you. It's too early to drop an F-bomb, but I almost did. And I, I hate you right now. 83 degrees. Yeah. 83 degrees. Um, and that means that allergies are... Um, yeah, allergies are going to kick my butt. It's like cedar or something. I don't know what it is, but yeah, not sick, just allergies. There is a drawback to living in one of the greatest cities in the United States of Monerica. So let's, uh, we're, we got a lot to cover this week. It's, it's a win Wednesday. It is more than likely the last win Wednesday of the year. Only the second time we've been able to utter those words in non-mocking fashion this year on the podcast. But Against it is the same indeed team. a win we, we only beat one team all year. I That's mean, right. I, yeah, yeah with Seattle's sure, still to come. I'm sure whatever, like they're going to lose that game. We beat one team this year. Congratulations. Uh, we're nothing if not consistent. We are the model of consistency, I think, uh, over two years, basically. <laughs> uh, so we'll recap a thrilling win against the Los Angeles Rams. We'll talk about the implications of losing that game now that, of course, Cleveland has one win themselves. And we, rather than recapping or previewing, rather, the Seahawks, we thought we'd do a little something different this week because, really, we got tired of recapping the same crap over and over and over again. We're probably going to lose against the Seattle Seahawks. It's probably not going to be fun. So instead, we're going to take this week to look back at some of our predictions that we had at the beginning of the year. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And what really does that mean for the state of the 49ers? But first, let's get to the rundown, the top news and themes coming out of 49er land. And really at the top is going to be something that was a theme echoed by lots of players. Colin Kaepernick, Joe Staley said something similar. But the general thrust behind the statement is how you finish the season can help set the foundation for next season. Uh, and so th the question then really at the top is, is that actually true, David? Is that something that teams that kind of end the season hot will continue into the following year on that hot streak and overperform? You know, it sucks to to start off this this rare win Wednesday on a sour note. But that's what we're here to do. We're here to bring you back down to earth. <laughs> yep. Uh, after that second win, don't you dare let those hopes slip high. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it doesn't mean anything like on one hand, it's great, you know, for the players and, and I'm sure the coaching staff who have, you know, put in all of those hours all season long and to, to finally be able to end that losing streak. Like, I'm sure it feels great for them. Right. And, uh, and, and maybe there's something within their mindset that's going to help them, uh, you know, finish out the year or maybe that propels them in the off season. Like, there's just not any evidence that it makes a difference to finish the season hot, whether that's, um, you know, just a, a couple of games like we've seen the 49ers do previously or like if it's, a, you know, a hot second half, there's just no evidence that that carries over from season to season. And Bill Barnwell, one of our, our favorites here, um, looked at this pretty in depth for Grantland a couple of years ago. And basically what he found, he looked at uh, teams since 1990 to 2011 was the span. This was done like 2013, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and basically the win totals, so the next year win totals, differed very, very little between teams that finished the second half of the season on a hot streak, teams that finished on a cold streak, or that had you know basically similar first and second half win totals. So once you compared them to teams of similar caliber, right? And, and he certainly goes... Um, you know, more in depth if you want to get an idea of like the, the methodology behind it and all that. But the main takeaway is once you kind of adjusted for teams of similar quality, 
what they did in the second half of the season had really no bearing on what their win total was in the following season. So uh, again, great that they, they feel good about this win and and it's certainly nice. I know on our end, uh, you know, finally getting to cover a win, but it doesn't mean anything in the bigger picture. And really 49ers fans should be familiar with, with what this looks like in 2008, the team started two and seven before winning five of their last seven to go seven and nine. They went eight and eight the next season and in 2009, of course, they were three and five in the first half of the season. They went five and three in the second half, including three of the last four, and then went a whopping six and ten the following season. And and we've talked about this narrative before too. We talked about how often it's the strength of your schedule, and what sometimes your schedule becomes easier in the second half just because of the nature of the schedule. And that's what happens. There's some randomness that goes. There's some randomness that goes into creating that. But oftentimes, that's part of what creates that narrative of zero to hero of that, you know, two and 14 team that competes for a wild card. It's not so much that that team magically got better or made a leap. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's just that their schedule gets a whole lot easier. So it's definitely not going to be, I don't think even then, I don't think you can consider one win against the Los Angeles Rams, a hot streak (laughs) uh, in any way, shape or form. This is not ending the season hot, but even if you were to be so deluded for lack of a better term to think that this is indeed a hot streak, there is nothing that says that hot streaks do translate into the next year. So let's again, let's let's put that that ebullient joyfulness in a jar, tighten that thing up and save it for when we get a general manager. Yeah, I mean, there's there's again, there's just nothing to take away there. And it's great. It's just weird seeing like a bunch of articles pop up that, you know, and I get a lot of it's just kind of conveying, you know, quotes that the players are saying. But it's like, let's not get carried away here. Give hope a chance, David. Give hope a chance. <laughs> uh, so the the page speaking of hope the patriots are reportedly sp- uh, seeking a first and fourth round pick for one mr jimmy garoppolo who is considered the hope of the 49ers next year this is someone that matt Mayoko has said he would trade for to help fix the 49ers it seems to be the thing that fans are fixating on because he came in played well in relief of tom brady for two games this year and before jacoby Brissett came in and did the exact same thing that jimmy garoppolo did which was win uh and and so this is one of those things that now is becoming part of the i wish list for 49ers fans i want to trade for jimmy garoppolo and, and the two questions i've got about this david are one is this something the 49ers should pursue and if so at what cost because a fourth and a first and a first rounder and a fourth rounder seems pretty excessive uh, considering this is a dude that's seen like, you know, one and one half game of action or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, he's thrown, I was just looking it up, he's thrown like 66 passes this year is what what he managed to get in there before getting hurt. So um, I, I think with the, taking it, the first part, I guess, or I think it was the second part of the question, but I'm going to ha- handle that first, which was the compensation. Um, I don't see any way that they get a first and a fourth round for it. I mean, you know, you never know. The Houston Texans gave Brock Osweiler a truckload of money last year. And, you know, I would have probably said the same thing about him uh, going into that offseason. So, the, you know, it only takes one team uh, to do something stupid. But I would be very surprised if they managed to get that level of compensation for him based on what he's done. And Sam Bradford kind of set the market here more recently. But even before him, you have the Alex Smith trade, which was two seconds. And of course, Sam Bradford, of course, was, I think, a first and a fourth as well. Um, so there were different places where those teams picked, right? So you've got Minnesota who gave up a first round pick for Sam Bradford and some, some jump change or some other change, but they're picking later in the round. 
Whereas if someone like the 49ers were to give up a first round pick, that's a whole different ballgame because you're talking top 10. Yeah. And the other thing with those quarterbacks, right, is is regardless of what you think about them, you knew basically what you were getting, right? They had a ton of tape uh, that you could go back and watch. And it was, okay. when we're making this trade for Sam Bradford right now, we generally know what we're getting and what to expect. Same thing with Alex Smith, right? So uh, it's a little bit more if you think that, you know, those guys can come in and fit what your offense does, which obviously worked out for Kansas City, like, yeah, then you give that up with with this guy. Like, we don't know that it's pure upside at this point. Again, thrown 66 passes like regular season passes so far. We have no idea what Jimmy Garoppolo is. So getting to the should the 49ers pursue this part of the question Hold on before before you get there, I'm going to make you flip your script for a minute because you you it's actually funny in the agenda. This push in the agenda when David wrote it out, it was a bunch of one line sentences. Uh, it was like, <laughs> should the Patriots get that conversation? No. Yeah, I really just wanted to move quickly through this. <laughs> should the 40, I'm not going to let you do it. Should the 49ers pursue it? No. <laughs> Why not? Are you serious? Like this, that was basically it. I'm going to make you do the opposite. If the Niners did pursue it, what would be the reasons that they should? I'm going to have you play devil's advocate for because yourself. Because they're idiots. Um, <laughs> I don't know. They like throwing away more valuable assets. Um, I, I don't I, I honestly can't. I mean, it's. I guess it's upside, right? If you feel like, I mean, Garoppolo was what a second round pick when the the yeah, Patriots took him. Um, you know, this is generally considered to be a pretty weak quarterback class right now. Um, I don't. I mean, I guess that's your your if if you're hoping that you know what you can get out of him. Um, I don't. I think you're talking yourself into a lot of things that I just generally don't believe in, like from a football standpoint. So it's hard for me to make that argument, but. Uh, you're, you're getting into a lot of subjective things and talking yourself into upside. And uh, and the difference here compared to doing that with a draft pick is you have to give up a lot more in, in this case to get Jimmy Garoppolo. Like you're almost certainly going to have to give up multiple picks. I'm not saying it's going to be that first and fourth. Right. But, uh, you know, multiple picks would not be surprising is pretty common thing for a quarterback. So I, I think the opportunity cost is really the, the big thing. Like that leans me to where they shouldn't go after this. And it's just. There are so few examples of quarter like getting your quarterback via free agency or trade is almost never the way to do it. Like there, there are just you're telling me Matt Castle didn't do well. <laughs> you're telling me that 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 uh, Kevin Cobb didn't do well. You're telling me Matt Flynn didn't come in and do well. I mean, look at what happened to the Seahawks after they traded for Matt Flynn. Yeah, they drafted they signed Matt Russell Flynn. Wilson. That was no, good, they, good they went them. on a run. They're a dynasty now. I yeah. can only I can only then presume logically <laughs> that signing Matt Flynn and this and this run, this little mini dynasty in the Pacific Northwest interrupted by three years of glorious harbonus uh, is a direct result <laughs> of signing Matt Flynn. I think that's logic. That's I mean, how it works, that, right? yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, can't dispute that one. No, I um, know. I, th- I mean, I think you're right. Like I'm, I'm trying to get you to basically hang on to whatever thread there is of saying, yeah, this is a good decision. But at the end of the day, the thing that, that kind of, says that that puts me in the no camp pretty firmly with Garoppolo is the fact that he is a free agent after this year or after the, the next year, right? Not this year, but there's, we'd basically trade for him on a one year rental. And even then you'd have to sign him to a longer deal and you can make that a condition of the trade. But at that point you're paying second contract money and giving up two draft picks when you can probably do something similar in this year's draft trade up either back into the late first or maybe into the second round, get a quarterback that you then get at four years at a really cheap price and do whatever you can with them if you're talking about upside, right? If if if, this, if upside is the argument. So yeah. there, there's just not, there's not a lot there. I mean, I think what doing this right now for Garoppolo would have been like if the Texans 
traded for Brock Osweiler first and then paid him that money, that same contract. Because that's, I mean, that's basically, you mentioned that, you know, the one-year rental, almost certainly a team that trades for Jimmy Garoppolo is going to sign him immediately to an extension. Like, that's that's almost certainly going to happen. Nobody's going to trade for him and give him that sort of compensation or give the Patriots that sort of compensation um, and then, you know, bank on him, you know, just do the one-year rental thing and then bank on re-signing him afterwards. Like, that's just not going to be happen. Like that's not going, that's not the way that the, the league and like trades work with these sort of things. So um, yeah, I, I just think it's uh, what you would have to do in order to lock him up. And it is just silly considering we have no idea what type of quarterback that he's going to be at this point. So then let's get to the other story. And that's going to be, well, we've got two more here. One is that Rex Ryan was fired officially from Buffalo. Uh, he, basically was like hey if you're gonna fire me at the end of the year fire me now uh, and so the bills are like okay uh, and they fired him <laughs> now speculation of course begins because whenever there's a fired coach whenever there's a decent quarterback whenever there's anyone everyone in 49er land says well we should hire him to our team and rex ryan in this case uh, the last of course defensive coordinator uh that was fired um was uh oh god remind me his name he's a 4-3 guy um and everyone was like oh we should hire him we should Wait, hire him last, I forget who it was. last 49ers no, 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 no. It was another defensive coordinator or head coach that was fired recently. Oh, Gus Bradley. Gus oh, Bradley was fired. Bring and everyone was like, oh, man, the Niners should hire him as their defensive coordinator. And I was like, yeah, he's not going to fit in terms of scheme. Now, Rex Ryan, yeah, though, will fit in terms of scheme because he is a 3-4 guy. Of course, Jim O'Neill is a Rex Ryan disciple. He already runs a variant of his defense. And Rex Ryan is is through and through a defensive, you know, defensive guy and maybe a defensive coach in the mold of Wade Phillips where maybe he's always a coordinator and never a head coach so the question then becomes how quickly if it were available would you hire Rex Ryan and would you basically like not even let the ink dry on that contract before you were saying Baffley should have Jim O'Neill I mean can we do it right now can we just like get that over with like let's not even allow Jim O'Neill to get on the plane to Seattle like just bye like see ya I mean yeah it's like you mentioned that you're you're essentially running a variation of Rex's defense right now and and rex has a ton of faults as a head coach right like there are a lot of problems there but considering that he's now gone he went from head coach to head coach right there was no coordinator stop between his last two gigs between the jets and the bills um that's almost certainly not going to happen it would be very surprising for a third team in a row to give him a head coaching job so if he's going to remain a coach and he's not going to slip away into the media or anything like that like it's almost certainly going to be as a defensive coordinator and like you mentioned with the Wade Phillips comparison, like you could, it's it's easy to see that maybe Rex is just better suited to be kind of this lifelong defensive coordinator, a great defensive coordinator, right? Because nobody really disputes what he can do defensively, and like uh, his mind is a defensive coach, right? Except, except for the Bills' defense. I mean, the Bill, yeah, again, and and I don't know how much of this is is due to his scheme and due to. Uh, you know, his faults as a head coach or, or where that lies, right? I certainly haven't paid close enough attention to the Bills during his tenure to know what the problems were there. But I think his track record, you know, even if you want to put everything that happened in Buffalo, he was there for, what, two years, right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to take the the dude's track record for a decade plus, you know, coordinating great defenses before that over a bad stint, you know, with a, a team that's been kind of bad for a long time. So, um, yeah, and I think from a transition standpoint, right, there's one of the things that you worry about going, you know, from defensive coordinator to defensive coordinator with all of these young players that the 49ers have is do they get a chance to develop, you know, some of the things that they really need to work on when they're moving from scheme to scheme and having to learn, 
new terminology and, uh, you know, they're more focused on what they're doing and making sure that they can uh, figure out their assignments rather than, you know, doing some things fundamentally to to really develop and, and take that next step as a player. So you would seem to minimize that a little bit because I would imagine that the terminology is very similar. Like a lot of that learning curve stuff you really won't have to deal with. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it would make sense. I mean, whether that happens and, and whether they'll pursue it is a whole nother story. And, and, and you know, who knows what's going to happen once Black Monday rolls around. But um, I, I do think that that if they would be able to pull it off, like would, would be a really great move for them. I 100% agree with you that he is a, a better quality defensive coach with a better pedigree than Jim O'Neill. It's an easy hire if you can make that switch. But there are, if I were to, if I were to do the thing that I did to you earlier and make you play devil's advocate, right? I would, I would say one, there, his defense just simply didn't work in Buffalo, right? So it's not as if his scheme is a cure-all for every defense. You still need talent, and the 49ers are talent-starved. And, and two, I question whether or not Jim O'Neill's even going to get fired. I mean, the optimist in me says that he was the third choice in San Francisco because Chip Kelly wanted Mike, Ray, Mike Vrabel. He wanted Billy Davis. But supposedly Trent Baalke and Jed York didn't allow him to hire Billy Davis because Billy Davis was, of course, a defensive coordinator for Mike Nolan uh, back when Mike Nolan was the head coach. And so then you ended up with Jim O'Neill and, and you're, you know, it's, it's third, third time's a charm, so to speak. Even then, I don't think that that Chip Kelly is going to fire Jim O'Neill. So I don't even think the opening is going to be there. Mark Saltvite, um, I think I butchered his name, Saltvite, Saltvite, I forget. But he's a writer on Niners Nation. He's been on the, on the podcast a couple of times. And he wrote an article that talked about even the culture fit, right? Like, is Chip Kelly's culture of positivity going to mesh with someone who gave jobs to the guy who punched his starting quarterback in the jaw and made him a captain in that game? Um, you know, is he is he <laughs> going to fit with a guy that, which is all true, uh, is he going to fit with with a guy who basically said, all right, Richie Incognito, you're a bully. You bully Jonathan Martin. I want a team to build a bully. So Jonathan or uh, Incognito, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and give you a contract, right? Like, is that the kind of person that Chip even wants to be around? Yeah. There may be something to that. I don't know. But as much as I would love to see that happen, I don't think the probability of that is very high, even though I think from a, from a pure football perspective, um, it's a better move. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Like, I honestly hadn't even begun to consider, like, all of those those other factors, like, beyond the football factors. And I think that that point, whether he's a fit, you know, in with that locker room and, and just with the culture that Chip's trying to create there, like, uh, again, you, you could see how that wouldn't work very well. But from a pure football standpoint, you know, again, if you could get a coach of that caliber, I think that would make some sense if you can figure out the other stuff. Um, obviously, the 49ers are a little... Um, you know, wary of having that sort of clash uh, on any sort of level that's going to become public. So, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree there. But, um, yeah, one thing I guess, I guess to wrap that up with with Rex that I did kind of remember, and again, I'm not very familiar with Buffalo's defense and, and what they've been doing while there, but I do remember that he, that they were like a 4-3 team before, right? And they pretty much had personnel that was more suited to be a 4-3 team, and he tried to come in there and make changes right away. So I think that might be, uh, again, reason why, Things didn't go so well there. But again, from a pure football standpoint, like I would take his track record over what happened uh, just in the last couple of years. So, like I, there's a much larger sample of him being a very, very good defensive coach. And last up in the rundown is going to be one of our favorite segments, and that's going to be this week in Chip Kelly throwing shade. 
Uh, I feel like we need uh, like an entrance music or a drop or something <laughs> uh, of just just sarcasm, like sarcasm font, uh, because that's basically what he does. But this week, Chip Kelly was asked uh, whether or not the why the 49ers weren't looking to evaluate players for the future um, because they're not giving time to backups. And here's what Chip Kelly had to say. Now, I don't get the sense that you're trying to evaluate guys for the future. Uh, is that accurate? We're not. You, you're not? We, we, we evaluate every day. I mean, but you're not like, hey, I, I want this young guy to get out and play, this, you know, the third-string quarterback or second-string quarterback. No, they have to earn that, though. This isn't just Christmas and we give out gifts. I mean, that I don't think that's fair to the – the guys that are here that have worked and done everything you said and just say, hey, you're not going to play this week because this other guy that we know is not better than you, we're just going to throw him out in the game and see what he can do. I don't think that's fair. And I think when you look at what Koobs is saying to say that wholesale, I mean, Trevor Simeon's starting this week, so I don't I don't know what changes they're making. I think everybody has always trying to plan and see how these people fit in our things, but you also have to be cognizant of the fact that you just we watch these guys every day we make evaluations every day we we see them practice every day you get an opportunity to see them every single day so to just say hey i know this kid's been awful in practice but let's just chuck him out in the field and see what he can do I don't, I, it just doesn't work that way so that was this week and chip kelly throwing shade for you sarca- for you sarcasm lovers uh enjoy is is a, a good solid minute of bliss always a treat. Uh, so always so let's get to the rams then Uh, it was it is indeed a win wednesday it is the second win wednesday of the year against the rams uh boy was my uncle pissed off (laughs) he went to the first game at levi's with me and we whooped him royally uh and then this game i was home for christmas and so we went over to my uncle's place and we watched it uh and yeah he uh he was not happy uh (laughs) it was really funny to see what the other side of his horrible fandom looks like um so what really the number one question, and I think the question right off the top, is how in the hell did the 49ers come back and win this game when you look at quarters two and three and it was like basically a slog fest? It looked like the Camellia Bowl. It was a wasteland. Like some, Just like a yeah, wasteland it, of football. Um, it was. It was nobody terrible. Nobody should ever watch like, that. It looked like one of these mid-afternoon bowls that it's like 2 p.m. on a Tuesday. And you're like, huh, I wonder who's playing in this bowl no one's ever heard of. Northwestern and Mississippi Valley State and Southeastern Louisiana Tech University or whatever the hell it is, right? Like, it's what is happening? That, that's what it looked like. And, and yet here we are on a win Wednesday. What the hell happened, David? Um, I mean, it's I think first you have to almost even set the stage for what it meant for this team to come back, even beyond just the fact that the 49ers are terrible and had one win. Like, when you look at some of the, you know, we like, a lot of the advanced stats, of course, and and some of the win probability models that are out there, I always find you know very interesting. And you look at Pro Football Reference and, and their model uh, with five nineteen to go in the fourth quarter, the Rams had a ninety nine point eight percent win probability. And, and again, before you like go crazy with thinking that oh this is stuff just all made up, like this is just using historical data to say teams that found themselves in a similar situation, similar score, you know, on the road, same type of game situation. This is how often they went on to win those games. Um, and, and so it was certainly a, a rare thing for the 49ers, um, considering how terrible their offense was to to be able to come back from that sort of deficit. Um, and I think when you look at the fourth quarter specifically, right? So like, like we mentioned, the second and third quarter, and really for for most of this game, uh, offensively for the 49ers, it was, they couldn't do anything. Like the run game was awful. Uh, the Rams defensive line just, just kind of dominated, which we'll get to a little bit here. But I think a few things changed in the fourth quarter for the 49ers offensively that, that allowed them to sort of make this comeback. One, 
the the game situation, just the fact that they were down as big as they were, like it forced them to abandon the run game, which had just been atrocious all game long. And, and they just were unable to find anything there and, and to get anything going. Um, and when you remove the quarterback snaps and that weird, I don't remember even why they decided to run Sean drone on the third down play before they punted at the end there. Um, but if you remove that kind of final series there, they only ran the ball twice in the fourth quarter. And again, most of this is probably due to, to game situation, but also uh, Chip at least finally saying like, screw it, we can't you know, really afford to do this. And, and we're going to you know, remove at least one facet for the Rams defensive line to dominate this game. So you had that. Um, and then you had a, a defense on the Rams that was probably a little bit more willing to give up some yardage underneath. Like you see, you know, defenses in the fourth quarter with a big lead. Like you, you want to kind of keep the lid on everything, right? Keep things in front of you. And they certainly weren't playing prevent defense or anything like that, but they were kind of, you know, uh, this playing their safeties deep a little bit, playing their corners off and, and just kind of being a little bit more willing to give up those things underneath and force them to dink and dunk, which usually isn't really a very successful strategy, right? Normally when you want to make those big comebacks, you need some big plays in the passing game. And they were able to do this almost purely on just dink and dunk of those last two drives or the two scoring drives. And, you know, you think about the Rams and, you know, this is a team that is known for its um, for its coaching decisions. I feel like that's that's a fair statement to make. That would also be sarcasm in case you didn't catch that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense that they were going to do that. But there, there was also a, a different element in the way that Colin Kaepernick got rid of the ball, because we're talking about the dink and dunk kind of offense. And you're like, that usually doesn't work. But especially when you've got a defensive line that has Aaron Donald and, you know, Michael Brockers and the teams that were completely eating up the 49ers offensive line. I think Colin Kaepernick and, and maybe some of the game plan was to get rid of the ball a little bit quicker because entering the game, and this is going to be our stat of the week for, for this game, but entering the game, Colin Kaepernick had an average time to throw of 2.96 seconds. That's the third highest among qualifying quarterbacks. In this game, he was at 2.53 seconds. And, and that 0.4 seconds doesn't sound like a lot, but it moves him into the middle of the pack in terms of quarterbacking. So there was a lot of quick throws. Only one of his passes was more than 20 yards in the air, and 31 of his 38 attempts traveled less than nine yards in the air. So this is one of those games where the dink and duck worked probably because, A, he had to get the ball out fast that allowed him to actually complete some passes, and two, you know, we think of you know this this epic comeback, but when you really think about it, it was it wasn't like it was a game that was completely out of proportion. It was a game that was a two score game. You know, it was it was fourteen points going into the fourth quarter, and at that five minute mark that you mentioned, the Forty ers were already driving to get that first touchdown. So we're really talking about a one score game with five minutes left. You know, this isn't going to be a twenty one a twenty one point comeback. So it was a comeback. I think that was within the realm of comeback ability, if you will, for this 49ers offense. Because at the point at which you put it at 17 points, you know, or, or maybe even, you know, hell, 10 points, all of a sudden the game becomes a bit more out of reach. I mean, I think for this offense, I don't know how reachable it was. Like, if you look at what they've done right over the course of the year, like, I mean, in a normal situation, you're absolutely right. You know, like they they started the drive where they got the first touchdown in the fourth quarter, where they, I think 10 minutes left or a little over 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And then it took him a little bit to get down there. And then they took over for that uh, last scoring drive where they they ended up taking the lead with like just over three minutes to go. Right. And this is a team that, again, we talked about last week, how they hadn't scored a point or hadn't scored like their their point total in the second half had been just completely awful. And they hadn't been able to do anything in the second half or score any points. And we talked about how that wasn't really 
anything that you needed to take a whole lot of stock of because they're just bad in general and they just happen to be a little bit worse by chance in the second half than the first half. Here we saw a little bit of the opposite, right? They were bad for the first three quarters. And then we saw, uh, I think, a, a quality fourth quarter that was, I think, resembled a little bit more what they had done to open some of the games early in the season, right? It was a type of fourth quarter where they would it put put a couple of drives together. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned here, like the 38 pass attempts that traveled or 31 of the 38 that traveled nine uh, yards or less in the air. Almost all of those like uh, or over half of them, I should say, were in the fourth quarter. Like he had more passing attempts in the fourth quarter than he did in the first three quarters combined. So and, it and was, I think that just kind of we've talked before about the effect of Colin Kaepernick on this offense. And y- you will it. We're not in any way, shape or form saying that Colin Kaepernick is the answer at quarterback. But Colin Kaepernick is the one of the better performers on offense. And that that doesn't mean that this offense is greater, that he is great. It's just the unfortunate reality that the offense and the talent level is not good. But Colin Kaepernick happens to be able to put a team on his arm to a certain degree against the bad team. And we're seeing a little bit of that here. Um, In this case, it was his arm. Usually it's his legs. But Colin Kaepernick is an exciting player and he can make some of these things happen, which is, I think, why, you know, sometimes you you, you see fans kind of go back and forth with Colin Kaepernick. But let's get to the offensive line because the offensive line was, you know, thinking about just the context of the season, a, a unit that we thought would do fairly well. This is Garnett's something like now 10th start. You've got Trent Brown, who performed really well against Atlanta, and now he's still, again, at left tackle. You've got Zane Beatles at center. You've got Tiller, who we think is a better offensive lineman than uh, Beatles at the left guard spot. And so you've got an offensive line that maybe you're like, okay, maybe you can prove a little bit of something, but here they come against the the buzzsaw that is the the Saint or the Los Angeles Rams defensive line, and what the hell happened to how they performed? It's it's kind of funny when you watch these games, these 49ers Rams games the last couple of years, and it just it the 49ers offensive line has been so bad, um, they just don't even look like they belong on the same field when you get them up against this Rams front. Like Rams defense and and obviously the Rams in general have a lot of problems, but the one thing that's been pretty constant for them is their defensive line is very good. Um, and you know, obviously that starts with Aaron Donald and all of the supporting guys that they have there. Like, uh, Hayes had a really good game here. You mentioned Brockers, like everybody basically up front for them had a very good game. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it looked a, alluded to it a little bit earlier, but in the run game, the foreigners just couldn't do anything. When you look at, uh, just carries by running back. So Carlos Hyde and Sean drone, they combined for 55 yards on 23 carries. So just under 2.4 yards per clip. 36 of those 55 yards came after contact. So that means when you do that math, 0.8 yards per carry came before those running backs were touched. Less than a yard, basically three quarters of a yard, basically, is, is what they managed to get each time they touched the ball before there was a defender in their face. And I think a, a large chunk of those, I, I forget when he was first contacted, but the first run of the game, Carlos Hyde went for 14 yards. 14 yards, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so when when all of a sudden you remove that one, right, uh, it, it looks even worse than those numbers suggest. So basically, on average, the running back was getting hit just shy of the line to gain or right at the line of scrimmage. And anything they gained was a result of these people being large humans and falling forward. Yeah, it was uh, it was really kind of just a disaster to watch. And it was the entire offensive line was responsible. I mean, nobody I think if you had to pick one, Trent Brown was probably the best guy, which is. Uh, really impressive considering he was making his first start at left tackle as opposed to the right side. So uh, certainly a little kudos to him. But I mean, 
everybody else was just awful. Um, and this is two games in a row now where Trent Brown, Trent Brown playing at left tackle has shown a little something, something because and or really he was a little half the game at left tackle. But I mean, he really held up well against Vic Beasley. He held he's holding up well against really, really good defensive linemen. I mean, he's going up against not just scrub, you know, elements or scrub players. He's holding his own. I think this is if you're looking for a bright spot, Trent Brown is one of them. Uh, and and he's proving that he can hold up against really good NFL level competition. Yeah, certainly from a pass protection standpoint. I mean, the run game is is uh, sort of a different issue with him. But we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get there for sure. But uh, so so the O line just couldn't do much there. And then again, like we talked about in pass protection, really wasn't much better. Um, you know, they only ended up the pressure total was somewhat reasonable. So it was 34.7% of snaps, which again, isn't terrible. Um, but that was sort of masked by how quickly they were getting the ball out of Kaepernick's hands. Like they really started And again, especially in that fourth quarter, which uh, was when over half of Kaepernick's pass attempts came, uh, they, they were getting the ball out very quickly. They were getting the ball out to their running backs, you know, getting it to receivers underneath, you know, under that 10 yards in the air uh, line. So they just weren't giving them a chance to kind of screw things up essentially. So, that was uh, certainly one of the big takeaways, and I think that was really the main reason why the 49ers weren't able to do anything offensively for the first three quarters. So you've got a team that was getting bottled up in the run game because they were going up against a formidable, def- a formidable defensive line and defense overall, and then all of a sudden the game situation and urgency forces the team to turn to the passing game where they can be a little bit more efficient because Colin Kaepernick is uh, a decent quarterback in the system. And because he was getting the ball out much quicker and all of a sudden you are able to get a reasonable, you know, kind of seven to 14 point two score swing. And of course, you're facing an offense that is absolutely terrible because Jared Goff also did not play very well. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw from Jared Goff, because it's it's one thing to say the offense played well. It's another thing or at least well enough to win. It's another thing to say, yeah, but the other team has an opportunity to score as well especially because Jared Goff was a quarterback that was drafted highly overall last year. And we're looking at quarterbacks. What was Jared? What was Jared Goff's performance like in this game? Was it something that you expected? Cause I know pre-draft we were both on the Jared Goff train and we thought he could do well this year. Um, what did you see from Jared Goff uh, in the context of the Rams offense going up against the defense that we know is susceptible to giving up yards and points? Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't great. Needless to say, like, Uh, I think he's really kind of struggled since he took over and it is difficult to know how much of that you want to to just, you know, mark off due to the fact that the Rams is like Los Angeles is kind of this offensive wasteland, right, for talent. Like even if you have good players, guys that seem like talented players like Todd Gurley, right, Um, considering what he did during his rookie season in college, like nobody would really uh, come out right now and say that Todd Gurley isn't a talented player. But their offense just is so bad. Like, it's one of the few teams that can really, uh, that, that really is probably worse than what the 49ers have been dealing with offensively this year for, for most of the year. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to know what you can take away from those sort of performances when um, you have a team that's as bad offensively as the Rams are. But uh, he certainly did a lot of things that were, you know, nobody's fault but his own, right? The two interceptions that he threw were really just terrible. Like, the, the first one that, that Brock picked off, he actually had, I forget who the receiver was coming across the middle, but there was an opening there. Like it was, it was an open route and he just threw the ball so far behind him that Brock was able to kind of undercut it and, and get his hands on it. Um, same thing kind of with the last one, like the, the Richard Robinson pick to seal the game um, late throw, like on a deep out route. And, and it was just uh, for Robinson who was kind of playing off and just really kind of squatting on that sort of route. 
uh, was a very easy interception for him. So they, there were some some definite bad throws and some problems with accuracy. So uh, he, he's he certainly deserves some of the blame. But um, yeah, I, I think it's still early, right? Like we, we want to see like once they get a different coach in there, if they can try to find a quality offensive coordinator and get him in a different system that might be able to to suit his strengths a little bit more. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what he does and if he can live up to what we thought he could be pre-draft or if he's just going to be kind of one of those guys that that starts off really poorly and never really gets out of that rut. Uh, I'm just hoping Sean Payton doesn't end up in Los Angeles. Um, let's let's get to our spotlight player really quick, because this is someone that I really wanted to watch and got to see a couple of snaps due to injury. But all in all, it was a pretty eventful day. And that was for one Mr. DeAndre Smelter. Um, he had his first pass snaps as a pro, fourth round draft pick for the 49ers. Of course, has been battling back from injuries. He had 27 snaps, which is not an insignificant number of offensive snaps. Um, that's about half a game's worth, just shy of it. Uh, and uh, and what did you see from DeAndre Smelter, David? Well, not a whole lot. A lot of blocking. <laughs> a, lot of, a whole lot of zero. <laughs> a lot of blocking. Um, a lot of not seeing the ball come his way at all. I mean, zero targets. Uh I, I, to be honest, like it's, it's funny cause he's our, our spotlight player. Cause we were interested that he was going to be on the field, uh, for the first time in two years. And, and we wanted to see something out of him, but didn't really give us a whole lot. Um, I don't know that there's much that you could take away from the, the routes I mean, that honestly, he ran and not, yeah, being I watched at. him. I watched him block, um, a lot when I watched the game live. Cause every time he was out on the field, I was like, Oh, where is he? Number 18, number 18. All right, let me watch. Let me watch. Let me watch. All right, whole lot of nothing, whole lot of blocking. I mean, he he got a couple of nice blocks in there, but right. that's kind of like, what he did at Georgia Tech. I was going like, to say, like <laughs> that was actually, you know, that's one of the strengths that we pointed out. Uh, you know, you know, obviously, yeah. you don't want to ever have the the most notable thing for a wide receiver shouldn't really ever be their blocking. Um, that's kind of where we're at with DeAndre Smelter right now. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, hopefully he he continues to see some action in this last game, can actually get some passes thrown his way, so he can. Uh, you know, get a little bit better idea of what he might be able to do. Um, but it was at least interesting that he went out there. You know, he was able to get on the field. You know, we we kind of thought, I think, going into the game that he might be active because we needed another receiver, but probably wouldn't see the field all that much, right? Maybe only get a few snaps. Um, and, and so he was out there. It just wasn't a situation where he was able to get involved too much with the passing game. So the 49ers win the game. They are They were happy. Chip Kelly was happy. It's probably one of the most emotive we've seen Chip Kelly on the sidelines yeah. all year. And and this felt like a good win for the team. This feels like a team that, you know, d- despite the fact that they are consistently losing, seems at least united in in their fate. And they know that it was fun and it was great. Um, but this is a team that now had the opportunity to have the number one overall pick out right because of the tie with Cleveland. And well, because Cleveland won and they had a record tie with Cleveland going into the game against the Rams and they would have had the tiebreaker due to strength of schedule. But now by winning the game, the 49ers are locked into that number two spot and barring any crazy outcomes uh, in week 17, because of course you still have Cleveland going going up against Pittsburgh with a Pittsburgh team that's resting all their starters. Uh, Mike Tomlin said he is resting Roethlisberger and Le'Veon Bell, and Antonio Brown. So it's possible that, that the Browns could beat the B team, and in which and if we lose to the Seahawks, which we're both predicting, then you've got two 2-14 two and 14 teams, and we would still win that tiebreaker. But presuming everything goes according to the supposed football plan, Cleveland loses, we lose, we, we then end up with that second-round pick. So was, was the win worth 
losing that draft position. Even when we win, we manage to screw everything up. That's really where we're it's at. It's the wompiest win that, Wednesday that's where that, we're at uh, with this team. that we've had. Um, I mean, you know, obviously you can kind of debate the difference between the number one and number two pick. I think really what it comes down to uh, and how much difference there is, because I, I certainly am in the camp that I would much rather have that number one overall pick than uh, have had this meaningless win, right? Um, it really, I think, though, comes down to what you think about that player that's likely going to go number one overall, right? If it's not a strong class at the top and there's not really this surefire player that's a number one caliber guy, you know, this is, you know, when you when you look at like the Andrew Luck draft, right? Like um, that was somebody that was like, okay, we consider this to be a franchise changing player, it was right? Andrew was Luck very and everyone else. Yeah. Um, and so when you have a draft like that, where there is this one player that could be a, a franchise altering player, uh, at a very key position. So you're talking quarterback, pass rusher, um, or likely the two. I don't think you're really going to see any other position go number one overall uh, and make that huge of a difference. So if you have somebody at one of those two positions and everybody else is kind of fairly clearly below them, then yeah, having that number one overall pick means a lot uh, and is probably even more valuable than what you're going to see in a lot of the draft charts. Uh, again, if it's not the case, then there's probably not a lot of difference. But uh, so we're, and we're going to get, you know, into the, the draft stuff and, and get into this, uh, in more detail as the off season goes on. But right now it seems like miles Garrett might be that guy. I don't know if he is. I, again, I haven't watched a whole lot of him. Like I haven't watched a whole lot of this defensive class or this draft class in general. Um, so, so I certainly don't have a, a firm opinion on this yet, but it seems like the general consensus is that it is miles Garrett and then kind of everyone else after that. Um, and, and so if you feel that way, then this was, uh, you know, a potentially costly win in the grand it, scheme. It could be. It, it could absolutely be. I, I don't, even if I think that Miles Garrett is the the number one kind of far away best player in the draft. And, and I, again, I don't know that either. I mean, I watched them a couple times and I watched them live, but, it, you know, it's still not enough to, to make that conclusion. I still don't think that teams are necessarily good enough to say this is the number one player and that's that. There's been a lot of really good analysis done about the top of the draft and the value of picks. And while by and large, it says that, yes, the earlier you pick, the better, the more likely you are to get a good player. You still look at things like um, a 538 article that talked about teams with top five picks and how they only correctly identify the player who goes on to have the best career 10.3% of the time. And that percentage gets worse as it goes into the draft, right? But you're telling me that that Miles Garrett really only has, if he's a top five pick, you know, kind of a one in 10 shot of being the best player in that draft, all of a sudden the number two pick is like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. You look at the average value over the career of a player who's drafted second instead of drafted first, it's only slightly lower than someone who's drafted first overall. And you could probably account for that just simply because that player is going to get more opportunities to start. It's likely a quarterback. They have longer careers. I mean, there's lots of ways that that number can become a little inflated. So I, I kind of fall into the camp where, if I don't trust my general manager to do, if he needs that number one pick to get the pick right, then I don't trust him with any picks at that point. Like, I don't trust him with the first pick. I don't trust him with the second pick. I don't trust him with any pick. And that's kind of where we are with, with Trent Baalke is, is the unfortunate reality, right? So it's like, it's, it's, it, I, I would love to say, yes, he's a slam dunk candidate, but nothing in the NFL draft is slam dunk, right? It, it's a lot of chance. It's a lot of variance. Um, and, and so it's like, yes, it sucks, but 
I, I don't think it's the end of the world if we end up with number two versus number one. If it dropped us to like 10, like it did in 2005, 2006, then I'd say like, okay, that, that's, that's a little bit different, right? But yeah. Cleveland could also end up, you know, taking a quarterback because they fall in love with Kaiser or they fall in love with Watson and Miles Garrett's there at number two for the taking. Um, you know, you, you really never know what's going to happen. So, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's like, it's, I'm, I'm happy to have one. I'm happy to discuss a win. I'm happy the team feels good. And, you know, we'll, we'll end up drafting a player and that player will be good or not good. At the end of the day, we'll all still be here talking about the same crap next year. Well, sure. I mean, when, when you when you kind of put it in that context, then it's like, does any of it really matter at all? Right. It, it's kind of uh, we can talk about existential crises. Sure. I mean, at this point in our fandom, we've had three years of positivity in what is now like bordering on a, a high school education's worth of suckage. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, you know, removing that part of thing and like the the getting getting too far that direction, I, I think. One, if your argument is, you know, about the not trusting the general manager, I think you're making the wrong argument, right? Because I completely agree. Like if you if your general manager is so bad that you don't trust him with the number two overall pick, then um, you, you have a different problem there, right? That's not the argument to make for why the, having the number one overall pick is significantly better than the number two, right? I think that argument is one that we touched on at the top, which is, is there a, a, a fran- like a kind of consensus franchise changing player? Because while yes, like, Teams are terrible. The draft, the entire draft is a crapshoot. The higher you pick, the better your odds are. Like, just because they're not good at the top doesn't mean that they get better. They Those terrible odds at the top get worse as you go. So you still have the best odds of finding a quality player the higher that you pick. Um, and there are, I think, some situations, it's rare, but there there are times when there are these kind of franchise-changing players that come along that everybody loves, everybody agrees is going to be a star, and that tends to typically work out that way, right? Like Andrew Luck is a, a very recent example that is is become like a very great quarterback. He's, he's been fantastic this year, right? D- despite everything that's going on around him, he's been very good. Um, and you look at, uh, I don't know, some g- other guys that are coming up recently, like that kind of leave my mind, but they're, it's it's a rare thing. It doesn't Reggie happen Bush. often. He did, he did great. I don't know that people um, considered him to be that though, right? Nobody said that Reggie Bush was, is coming was, in and, and like changing your franchise. He was, and, and, and that's that's like the flip of the argument, right? I, I think that that there's always, for every one guy that everyone nails, there's the other one that they don't, right? And that's why the draft is kind of a crapshoot, sure. which is why it's like, I'm not, I'm not, I I wanted the number one overall pick too, because that way you get your choice of whomever you want. Right. But I don't think number two is, is appreciably worse, unless for whatever reason, Miles Garrett does end up being Lawrence Taylor reincarnate, and it's just the rest of the draft, but... I don't know that that that's necessarily always the case, because yeah. I think in 2005, Reggie Bush was that guy. He was the canvas prospect. He was Barry Sanders reincarnate. And when Charlie Casserly ended up taking Mario Williams, it was like, oh, my God, what are you doing? You screwed this up, you know, and, and this is the kind of the, the two edges of the sword is that I think what if I were to jump into Casserly's mind, what he's thinking is a running back might be cool, but a pass rusher is better. And, you know, what he ended up going with was Mario Williams, who's someone who had a pretty good career and is still pretty good. Yeah, he's um, been very good. Yeah, and and so you know, it's it's. I think he chose that impact position at number one versus the consensus overall, and I would say it was probably the right choice. Yeah, I mean, but, I would argue know. that that a running back can't really be franchise changing. Like Adrian Peterson might be the best running back in the history of football, and he's like done like that doesn't change your franchise, right? The two positions that can do that are quarterback and pass rusher. Like those are the only two 
positions in the game that can have like a, a major, major impact on your, I mean, you might be able to argue that quarterback's the only one, right? But I think those two are the, the key things. But even getting beyond that, the final point that I kind of had there with, with that is the trade value, right? So if, if ultimately you don't decide, you, you know, you determine that there isn't one of those players there, we're a terrible team, we have a ton of holes, and we want to try and, and trade back, you know, maybe later into the top 10, because we think the player that we can get there is of similar quality to whoever we can get number one. Like you're going to get a, a larger haul for that at number one, where a team can come up and pick any player they want than you can at number two. It might not be a huge difference, but there is a difference. Um, and, and so I think there are a few reasons there that makes it like to why it certainly would have been, uh, you know, better to end up there. And, and I, you know, like you mentioned, it may be in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to be a huge difference, but considering, you know, uh, the, the win here means nothing like, and it's just a, about maybe feeling a little bit better in the short term. I'd still rather have that number one overall pick. And I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters enough to, to care as much as it, it would to, for any really discernible difference, right? Like I look at Joey Bosa getting drafted fourth overall. I look at Khalil Mack and where he was drafted and how good he is. I mean, there's, there's value to be had in the top five sure. picks. And, and as long as your quarterback is not com- or your general manager is not completely inept. And while we've got our issues with Trent Baalke, um, I don't think he is completely inept at picking, um, especially at the top of the draft. Um, you know, it's like you're, you're going to get someone who's going to help your franchise. Um, you're not going to get Rashawn or you know, Rashawn Woods at the top two picks. But, you know, so it's like, well, it's fun. It's cool. And who knows? We may still end up with Miles Garrett after all. And whether it be because we end up with the first pick. Or because the Browns do something very Brownsy, um, and they trade back with Jacksonville, and Jacksonville takes a quarterback, or because they take a quarterback, you never know. You really never know. So it's eh. it's one of those things where it's like eh, internet shrug, and you go from there. <laughs> um, so let's talk then about the the 2016 season because rather than boring you with another Seattle recap where we tell you about how great Seattle is and how their offensive line is crappy, but Russell Wilson still does Russell Wilson things, and they're going to go into the playoffs, and it doesn't matter that they have no running backs is because they somehow figure out a way to win, and they're cover three defense. We've been there before, yada, yada, yada. Let's talk about the wrap-up of 2016, because next week is Black Monday, and that could change everything. It, we could be talking about a new general manager. We could be talking about a new head coach. We could be talking about a new vice president of football operations. We could be talking about all manner of different things. So to give give ourselves space to talk about those things, we're going to wrap up the 2016 season now. Uh, Some might argue about four weeks too late. Uh, Maybe even like 10, 8. I don't know. There's you can climb that number pretty high. Yeah. So so let's talk about 2016 and let's do in the context of where or what we thought was going to happen at the beginning of the year. And we went back and we looked at what we said was going to happen at the beginning of the year in our preseason preview show. And we identified a couple of things at the top where we missed and a couple of more things where we kind of got it right. And talk about how we landed based on what we predicted. And let's talk about this first one, which is going to be the 49ers health. So what was the health situation like for the 49ers, David? What did we predict and what did we get wrong because we certainly got this damn thing wrong when it came to to health for the 49ers. Yeah, I mean, so going into the year, you, you looked at it and, uh, you know, to measure kind of health over over the course of the season, we really like to use football outsiders adjusted games lost. And um, really, it just takes the, the amount of games that players miss, but it gives more weight to 
more significant players, right? So if you lose a starter, that obviously means more um, than losing a, a backup or a third string guy to, to injury. So um, it gives a little bit more weight to those guys that are seeing more playing time. Um, and they had been, you know, ranked very poorly in that metric for three straight years coming into the, the 2016 season. Um, I think they were 23rd or lower in all three of those years. And so you had that, and and we know about injuries, the, the fact that they're not consistent generally from year to year. Like, they're not predictive, right? Just because you had uh, poor health in one season doesn't mean you're going to continue to have poor health. And just because you have good health for one season doesn't mean you're going to continue to have that good health. It tends to be very random from season to season. Um, so considering that they had gone on that kind of poor luck uh, in the injury department there for three straight years, it seemed reasonable to expect them to be healthier in 2016. You combine that with the fact that, you know, you had all of the the Chip Kelly talk and the sports science and uh, everything that went along with that smoothie power. Um, and they had and it had at least shown in a small sample like they had been pretty good in Philadelphia. Right. The three years that he was there in Philadelphia, the Eagles were in the top six in AGL uh, during each of those seasons, including being first in his first season. So they, they were very healthy there. And you could, you know, kind of as might be a little bit of a stretch, but you could piece together an argument that said, okay, we know that based on historical data that they're likely to be a little bit more healthy. And Chip Kelly's bringing in, you know, all this extra stuff that's going to really put an emphasis on player health. So because they're putting a lot of effort and and resources into that, that should also help their cause a little bit. And well, that didn't happen at all. It it was completely terrible. Like it was very, very wrong. So, uh, you know, we don't have those AGL numbers for this year until the spring, which is usually when Football Outsiders puts those out. Um, but it's safe to say that they're going to rank very, very low. Well, with 16 people on injured reserve, I would imagine that that's going to oh, no, be we're fairly up, low. We're up to like almost 20 now because we put uh, oh, Carlos Lord. Hyde, what, Torrey Smith. Like they're, yeah, I, I think we're up to like 18, 19, 20, something like that. Yeah, I mean, and so the, one of the things that always is going to be, or not always, but one of the things that's going to be associated with a team that's going to be successful in any given year, especially with one as talent-starved as the 49ers are, is frankly their ability to stay healthy. If you can stay healthy, then you, you, you have more of a chance to keep your good players on the field, and, and those good players do good player things. Uh, but instead, well, all of a sudden, you've got, you know, freaking... Uh, <laughs> God, Nick Ballore. I cannot believe that Nick Ballore started as many games as he did uh, because that is just flat-out ridiculous. Um, he had no business being on a football field, and yet here we are, Nick Ballore, doing Nick Ballore things uh, in the middle of the defense, and so that's how you get worse uh, when you didn't think you could get worse. But one of the other things that we thought was going to be, um, that we thought was going to be, oh, not a lock necessarily, but something that would work against the 49ers was their schedule difficulty. Um, basically every advanced measure of schedule strength entering the season said that the 49ers would face one of the league's toughest schedules. And yet that's not actually what happened. It could go up a little bit because we play Seattle in week 17. But so far the 49ers have faced the 24th toughest schedule in football uh, based on DVOA through week 16. That's not very good. And by and large, that's mostly because of the NFC West. The Cardinals decided to fall back to earth because Carson Palmer was going to continue to be Carson Palmer. The Rams got worse, uh, and the Seahawks are still good, and they're still a playoff team, but normally they're at the top of the DVOA charts this season. They're only 10th, so you take a large bulk of your games against the division, and that strength of schedule was reduced. All of a sudden, your schedule's not very difficult, and that's something that we anticipated was a, a stronger schedule, and yet that didn't happen. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously those division games uh, make up a pretty significant portion of the schedule and, and having the NFC West fall off the way it did. I mean, the Rams, even though, you know, we we've always joked about all, you have all the Jeff Fisher seven and nine jokes and, and everything there, and they've never really been uh, good. They weren't bad either. Like they typically hovered around the kind of middle of the pack. Seven in and DVOA. nine, eight and eight. Yeah, right. Like I think there were uh, 16th in 2015 in DVOA. They were 18th the year before. So they they still hovered. Uh, you know, again, around average there when it came to their underlying performance. And then you had, like you mentioned, the Seahawks had been top in DVOA for four straight years, uh, were arguably the best team in football, you know, for every one of those seasons. The Cardinals weren't too far behind them. I mean, in 2015, they, they were also a top 10, I think maybe even top five team in DVOA. And so to have them fall off like they did and, and really finish down in like the bottom third of the league, um, those are that, that that makes a big difference in your strength of schedule. So that was kind of the one thing that we didn't really see coming that, uh, you know, really it, it didn't unfortunately lead to to any more wins. You know, we talked about before the season how the the team could be a little bit better. And, and I think we actually were right in, in some regards to that, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, but it didn't lead to more wins, which was something that we, you know, kind of thought that strength of schedule was going to mass some improvement there. Now, one of the other areas that we thought was going to benefit the 49ers was going to be improved offensive line play. And quite simply, the offensive line did not improve in the way that we hoped. We thought this was going to be the return of Anthony Davis, the addition of first-round draft pick Josh Garnett, Trent Brown developing into his own, that that would really solidify the offensive line. And really what happened was only one of those things turned out to be true, and that was Trent Brown. He has performed well, and he has held his own at least as a pass blocker and not so much as a run blocker, but it seems like a lifetime ago that Anthony Davis retired again. And Josh Garnett, is he's gotten a little better, but he hasn't gotten so much better that you're like, all right, this is great. I mean, you could say that his season overall has been a disappointment, but what actually happened is our run blocking has been pretty terrible, and we finished last in adjusted line yards. The pass protection seemed better, um, but it was still mostly a season-long problem. Um, and so all in all, it's one of those things where it's like what one of the strengths we thought we would have just simply wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I would honestly kind of disagree about Trent, Trent Brown um, being the one positive there. Like, yes, he did show some promise in pass protection, but he was so bad in the run game um, that I think that that kind of, especially in an offense, you know, like what Chip Kelly's trying to do there, where there's a lot of emphasis on the run, like, it kind of nullifies uh, some of the promise that he had there because he wasn't so good in pass protection that he could ju- you could justify him being, uh, you know, I mean, really, w- arguably one of the worst run blocking tackles in football this year. Um, it was it was really, really bad. And so he wasn't for those so of you great. wondering how for those of you wondering how the 49ers can be such a good running team, uh, but have such bad run blockers. Remember that a lot of that has to do with the quarterback. A lot of that has to do with quarterback scrambles and quarterback running, uh, and that's how the yardage totals are inflated, but also why even in DVOA, um, the rushing is, is inflated just simply because of the, run, uh, of the quarterback. Um, and Trent Brown can be an atrocious run blocker, uh, and we can still be a very, very good rush offense simply because of what Colin Kaepernick does. Yeah, and that's why you have that discrepancy between, so again, finishing dead last and adjusted line yards, which um, eliminates all quarterback runs, focuses only on runs by the running backs, um, and then compare that to their DVOA finish, which I think is like seventh right now. So um, very different there. The the quarterback certainly has a, a huge impact on those numbers because quarterback runs are frankly just far more efficient. So you have that, and again, pass protection, 
on the whole. So even moving beyond just Trent Brown and, and some promise there was was bad. I mean, we thought it was going to be better. I think it actually probably was better early in the season, but just kind of slowly got worse as the season went along. And, and they ended up their 30th in adjusted sack rate, um, 29th in PFF's pass blocking efficiency. So, you know, looking at the amount of pressures that they allow, not even just um, only sacks, but just total pressure that they're allowing per time that the quarterback drops back. Um, you know, ranking very poorly there. And so basically this area that we thought like this was the one, if you were making an argument for why this offense was going to be significantly better, it really started there. That was the only aspect of that offense that saw any sort of significant change in the off season. Um, and, and where you could kind of make an argument that it was going to be better than it was in 2015, because obviously the skill position talent, the quarterbacks um, were, were not very good. And that just didn't come to fruition. And that was, uh, really a big problem for why this offense didn't take uh, the step forward that we we kind of hoped that it would. And lastly, we've got a prediction that I made in the preseason, and that was going to be about Vance McDonald and his production. I said Vance McDonald would hit 750 yards. Uh, and what actually happened was nothing <laughs> short of, um, well, it was like a, a dropped football of sorts. Uh, Vance McDonald, <laughs> he... Uh, he had 391 yards in 11 games before landing on injured reserve. And if you take that number and, and kind of extrapolate it out to 16 games, that still only puts him at about 569, 570 yards. So that's that's uh, definitely more than a hair below 750 yards. I mean, you could see why I would make that prediction. Now, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, one thing. So I listened to that episode again. So I was going back because I knew that there were some things that we eventually got to that that weren't in like the agenda that we had built out beforehand. Right. Um, and this was certainly one of those things. So I went back and listened to, to see kind of what it was there. And I didn't put this note in the agenda because I wanted to see if you were going to remember or not. Um, you did try to add some caveats to this prediction, uh, which I was really just not wanting to let slide. So you were like, oh, yeah, if I mean, if Blaine Gabbert starts right, this is like only if Blaine Gabbert is is kind of the guy throughout the season, uh, which is also fair. Um, and, and so that part didn't happen. So, you know, you you can maybe argue semantics that this wasn't uh, something that no, you, I'll, you missed. I'll take the L. Um, I'll take the L. I'll take it on the chin. <laughs> but I, you could you could see why I would make that prediction. I sure, mean, he is sure. the, you know, first tight end or what was he? he was the only receiver this year to have two receptions over 60 yards or whatever it was. You can see why the system would produce yardage from the tight end position, especially considering he's basically him and unfortunately Garrett Selleck were two of our most prolific receiving options, which tells you all you need to know about this stupid team. But but yeah, you could see why I would make that prediction. I just didn't know the uh, the passing offense overall would be so anemic. I thought that Chip Kelly would give it a little lift, I mean, uh, and unfortunately, I think he did. He did give it a lift. It's just that lift was to an average of 180 yards a game. <laughs> <laughs> we were starting starting from the bottom, um, you know, yeah. and and now we're here, which isn't much better. Um, That's right. So what do we get right then? So what do we get right? If, if the things that we got wrong, right, we one, we didn't get healthier Two, the schedule was actually easier than we thought it would be. Three, the offensive line did not improve. And four, Vance McDonald continues to be Vance McDonald. What did we get right? Well, the first thing is that we told you that all of the numbers pointed to a decline from a 5-11 and 11 season uh, because really five wins was overachieving based on everything that we saw this team do. Yeah, so we, we spent a good chunk of time on this in the, the season preview, but really to boil it down, 
they the the point differential for the team in 2015 was very low. It was the worst in football, and it indicated that they were were actually worse than the five and eleven record um, would kind of lead you to believe, which is, says something. And that had a lot to do with their record in in close games, right? So in one score games last year, they were four and two, um, and that that ended up tied for the fourth highest win percentage in those one score games in football. So. We know, again, that that record in close games uh, is is not a predictive thing. It's not something that sticks from one year to the next. Uh, and, and there was a, an argument to be had that they could have very easily been 2-14 and 14 last year if you simply flipped the outcome of three field goals. That's it. You don't have to change anything else about those games. You just take a field goal, switch the outcome, and all of a sudden the 49ers are 2-14. and 14. So they really were pretty fortunate to be even the, the five-win team that they were last year. Uh, and, and that kind of bared out this year, right? They, they climbed by three wins. We're going to go ahead and assume the loss of Seattle there, two wins if they somehow managed to pull that out, but, uh, still a decline from last year in the win total. And that record in one score games completely flipped. They were, uh, Oh, and four entering last week and then managed to, you know, the, the one point win against the Rams, uh, pushed them to one and four in one score games, uh, entering the Seattle contest. So, uh, yeah, it just, they haven't been as fortunate in those close games and, that was, again, not something that you could really rely on, and that's a big reason why their record is down. So the second thing that we got right was that bringing back a nearly identical roster and expecting big improvements was misguided at best. And I believe the exact quote was, if San Francisco's offseason activity level were a heartbeat, it would have been pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, so that, I mean, that quote, I mean, that's, we can just go ahead and drop the mic right there because there, there's nothing else that, that you need in terms of color for this kind of war, right? I mean, Bolden and Boone left in free agency. Beatles was added, but he was probably one of the worst performers on an offensive <laughs> line that was underperforming. Um, the draft happened, and that was pretty much it. You've got, you, you were banking on the development of a couple of people. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that development because you've got guys like Jimmy Ward, Eric Reed, Kwaski Tart, Quentin Dial. They're, I think you said it a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago, where you said that maybe outside of Jimmy Ward, most of these players are good, but not good enough to carry a team. They're not your all-stars. They're not your blue chips. They are the, the players that fill out a roster, and they continued to be that so far this year. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, any argument where you were trying to suggest that the 49ers were going to be better than they were in 2015 really um, kind of revolved around a lot of these subjective things. And, and a big part of that was uh, expecting significant development from a lot of these young guys. And, um, you know, we kind of told you that, that essentially expecting it from that many players all at once was just something that was very unlikely to happen. Like, yes, maybe one player takes a step forward, two players, something like that, and, and really uh, develops into a quality player or a player beyond what we've seen from them so far, but uh, they they needed like a dozen players to make that sort of leap, and and it just really didn't happen. I mean, you mentioned I think the the guys that you listed there in Ward, Reed, Tart, and Dial, they kind of just did what they've done so far and kind of maintain the status quo, right? They've been that that solid role player. Um, and some people would argue that Jimmy Ward took a leap forward this year, but you remember that last year we saw this same player exactly. And that's told- yeah, that's the thing is I don't think there was a big difference right between yeah, twenty fifteen exactly. and sixteen. Exactly. It's just that everyone thinks he had a very bad 2015 because they look at the Brandon Marshall game and that's the thing that sticks out in their head when we were telling you nearly all year that Jimmy Ward was actually probably the best damn corner on the field. It's just that, you know, you had that one thing that stuck out in your head. And and I think that he still continued to be one of the best corners that we had out on the field. 
it just he just didn't get appreciably better. Right. And that's not bad. It doesn't mean he was a bad pick. It just means that he didn't take this this huge leap into being a complete shutdown corner. And and I don't know that he ever will be. And if we can put other pieces around him, I don't know that he will need to be. But, you know, it's just one of those things where he didn't get appreciably better. That's not a knock on Jimmy Ward. It's just kind of how things are. Yeah, I mean, and so you had players like that. You had, uh, you know, in the pass rush department, it was guys like Eric Armstead, Aaron Lynch, who um, due to a variety of factors, injury being very prevalent among them. Um, I, I think you could. Is a pop belly an injury? <laughs> I, I mean, so whatever, whatever you want to, uh, you know, kind of uh, allude to, there's the reasoning like they, they probably took a step backward, right? Like Armstead, even when he was in there, um, he was dealing with that shoulder injury and, and just really didn't look like the same guy that we saw in limited action during his rookie year. Um, and, and so he wasn't, he was, I mean, arguably like a liability, uh, really on a defensive end there when he was in yeah. most of the time, Aaron Lynch didn't do anything. I mean, we talked about, um, when, when we started getting to some predictions, uh, we, we talked about whether Aaron Lynch would get any, like a certain number of sacks, um, more than six or eight. I think if I remember correctly, because we were talking about the, the comparison Buckner. to Ahmad Brooks. No, that was the Buckner one. Uh, so Aaron Lynch, we, I, I forget. I think I asked you this. So I, I didn't. I don't remember. I, I listened to this like uh, earlier today and I still can't remember. But I think um, we were asking whether I asked you if he'd get double digit sacks, um, which is hilarious to think about right now. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, he hasn't been very good when he's actually been out there. Uh, and, and then you had like the only guy that was really a difference maker that I think that you could point to. And he even still had some question marks because of his injuries was Navarro Bowman, of course. And, and he only played four games before ending up on IR. And then you got guys like, you know, on, on defense like DeForest Buckner, Rashad Robinson that had uh, very, I think, promising rookie seasons. And, and I think uh, they could very well develop into two of the better players on this defense in the next couple of years. But they're still not there. And un- understandably so, like they're not ready to carry a defense yet. Right. And like they're they're in their first season. Rashad Robinson uh, it, it even more so like even more impressive than what we saw from DeForest Buckner, considering that he didn't play like his final year in college football. Like he really had a, a much further uh, gap to make a much larger gap to make up than DeForest Buckner did to become an impact player. Uh, and, and he is is certainly on the right path. But uh, again, those guys aren't there yet. And so you just have this kind of collection of defensive players that are very young, that they really needed to to all kind of take a step forward together and they all kind of just mostly stuck around the same thing. And that's how you end up with a defense that still uh, was as bad as they were this year. So the other thing that we got right was that the 49ers finished under their Vegas line of five and a half wins. We both picked them to go five wins, but we said they would be more competitive. They would be better in their DVOA, uh, even if they didn't finish with a better win total. And so that was by and large right, even though the win total wasn't right. They did finish underneath five and a half wins, and they did they did not match their win total from the previous year, but they did perform better based on DVOA. In 2015, they were last overall, 28th on offense, 27th on defense. In 2016, they are 28th overall, 24th on offense, 28th on defense, and that doesn't even include the red zone split because I believe in the red zone on offense, we're still a top 10 red zone offense based on DVOA, which is remarkable and stupid and also awesome. Um, that's, that's probably the lone bright <laughs> spot this season um, is that at least for red zone, if we can put the other 80 yards together, 
uh, then we might be okay. Yeah, it's really offense, that it's but. really that defense that's the big disappointment. I mean, sticking there. I mean, it was twenty seventh in twenty fifteen, twenty eighth this year uh, so far, and it, that was the area that you could point to, right? Because everybody kind of knew there was nothing there offensively. Even though uh, now, while games are actually happening, people are like, "Oh my God, why are this 49ers offense so terrible?" It's like, well, because they don't have any good players, and that was what we expected all along. Um, the defense has been the bigger disappointment because there is, I think, talent there. Like even despite what we've seen there, I think there are some players that could develop into quality pieces on defense. They just kind of need some more, like like they need some of those blue chippers, right? They need a, a dominant pass rusher. They need to add a couple of pieces where all of these other guys that are there can kind of fall into place and fall into their role as opposed to, to being asked to kind of carry this defense, um, and, and so I think that was the big thing that, that was a little bit of a disappointment, but yeah, I mean, overall it's, it would be, when you look at that underlying performance, it would be hard to argue that they haven't been a more competitive team this year. So before we get to the next one, really quick question. Yes or no. If Eric Mangini were coordinating this defense this year, would the 49ers have hit five wins? Hmm. Um, No. All right. Fair. Yeah. Uh, so the next thing that we got right was the number of games started. Uh, and we said the, the over under was nine and a half games for Blaine Gabbert, two and a half for Colin Kaepernick. Both you and I, David, had the under for Gabbert and the over for Kaepernick. What actually happened is uh, Gabbert started five games. Cap will indeed start 11. Unless, of course, we get the old Christian Ponder, uh, which isn't going to happen because you all heard Chip Kelly throwing shade at the top of the show. Uh, so 49ers production, David, I remember you were at this point in the show, we, it was pretty late in the show yeah. and I have, I think you were a little on the tipsy side of sober. Uh, and I remember that we were talking about whether or not a wide receiver would crack a thousand yards. And I thought, surely we've got to have one, surely one wide receiver is going to crack a thousand yards. And I remember you going, no, no, no wide receiver is going to crack a thousand yards. I'm going to put it out there. Not going to happen. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, I thought it was going to be volume that was going to do it simple volume. And sure enough, we couldn't even get a tight end, uh, to crack 600. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was kind of a, a, a fairly prominent thing you saw, like the, especially in like fantasy football circles, right? Like because just the Chip Kelly offense, everybody expected to well, Bruce Ellington. We thought yeah. Bruce Ellington was going to be the guy. And, and obviously who knows there, we can just assume that we were going to be right since it didn't actually play out. Um, but I, I mean, everybody kind of thought that there was going to be just some some production from this offense because it had to happen, right? They're gonna they're gonna run so many plays, they're gonna throw the ball so many times that like somebody's got to catch those and and somebody's got to produce in this offense, right? Even though there might not be any names, and I was like, well, I don't know if you guys looked at that wide receiver depth chart lately because it's not very good. Um, and, and so this was one thing. I mean, unless you know we we can't completely rule this out right now, Jeremy Curley could put up 396 yards against the Seahawks um, and, and top 1,000. So barring that, um, yeah, we're, we're going to be okay. We're not going not gonna to hit that 1,000-yard mark on the season. So if I did my, if I did my math correctly, he's got uh, like 604 yards, Jeremy Curley does? Yes, that's correct. So are we going to get a wide receiver over, oh, God, <laughs> Over 650 yards. Yeah, I think he can get 50 yards or 40, yeah. four, 
46. Yeah, Excuse right. me. Math yeah. is hard. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I so think he can manage that. Uh, wide receivers. Wide receivers. Yeah, I was going to say 700. Then I was like, oh, man, almost a 100-yard game against the Seahawks. Nah, That's going to be rough. Yeah, not, not going to yeah. go over that one. <laughs> nope. 50 uh, yards seems yeah, about right. Uh, so we'll leave oh, it there. Oh, God. So uh, we've got two more. Number one, Carlos Hyde, his health. Uh, I knew it. Can't can't say I didn't say I told you so. Uh, <laughs> Carlos Hyde did not start all 16 games. He played in 13, and of course, he finishes the year on injured reserve on what sucked. Uh, just absolute, just terrible hit where he got hit low. Wasn't a dirty hit. I mean, that's the way the NFL wants you to hit people. They want you to hit him low. Like, you can't blame that defender. That is, the defender's doing what the NFL wants him to do. He's playing heads-up football. Heads up right on a knee. Uh, and uh, and that's, you know, that's that's the end of the year. 12 yards shy of 1,000. 12 oh, yards God. shy that's rough. of 1,000 yards. So last but certainly not least, uh, the 2016 first rounders. Uh, we both said that Buckner and Garnett didn't begin and wouldn't begin the season as starters. But would they be starting at the end of the season? And would they make an impact? Uh, and so impact for DeForest Buckner, we ended up saying that he would get five or more sacks uh, which he did, and, and so he did end the season as a starter, and he did indeed get more than five sacks. We never really defined impact for Garnett, but I, I think we can safely say that that Garnett did not make an impact. Yeah, if we were going to define something, so it was kind of this was like the last prediction that that came up um, when when we were going through these at the end of the episode, and uh, yeah, it was kind of like just we we really narrowed in on Buckner, and it was like. Oh, would Garnett start? Like, yeah, they're both going to start by the end of the year, and then we just kind of forgot Garnett after that point, and and really only focused there. Buckner so, was way more fun to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and, and so yeah, the question kind of was whether whether Buckner would top five sacks or not, um, and that was uh, something that I don't I don't think you actually gave an answer though. I, it seemed like you kind of. I don't know. I don't remember. I, it, this was definitely this was one that you posed to me, which is why, of course, that it got off track and we didn't end up uh answering the the full question <laughs> um so so yeah like we we did hit on that and and kind of i i was thinking that buckner would land in the six to eight sack range and that's uh where he's at i mean i don't think there's any way that he's gonna um you know get four i don't know three four sacks in this game and and just kind of really uh drastically outpace Seattle, dude, that. you never know um yeah you, you never know never know that offensive line's pretty bad but i think yeah even if he picks up another sack here like another uh sack or two that um looks good i think all things considered you know with buckner um he he played about as well based on what we saw from him in college and kind of some of his strengths and weaknesses there all that kind of played out this year right he was uh probably the team's best pass rusher um he was very good on the interior. And that was, I think where most of his sacks have come from is going up against some of those interior offensive linemen, uh, did really well in the Rams game actually against, uh, the, the, the kind of trio there for the Rams. Uh, he lined up at nose a lot, which I thought was interesting and kind of shaded nose, uh, quite a bit there. So he, he kind of did what we expected. He played all along that, uh, defensive line, uh, played at multiple positions and was able to, to have somewhat of an impact. He still struggled with some of the things he struggled with in college, um, but he's got time there. And I think, uh, again, all things considered with all the context surrounding this team and how bad it was, um, he, he did about as well as you could expect. So uh, we're still waiting on him to get his anchor from Amazon prime is what we're saying. Yeah. Still, uh, he's still Christmas carrying anchor. It's yeah. Yep, MBD. That's right. Yep. 
So, so yeah, so that about does it for what we got right. We, we ended up getting more right than we got wrong, which is, which is good, uh, mostly because it just confirms that we, um, we're, we're looking at the team through the right prism, e- even if some of the things didn't, didn't break our way. Uh, but, but that's the recap. I think ultimately we, we got what we expected, even if we didn't think it would come in this particular flavor. We didn't think we would have, you know, one of the worst run defenses in, you know, in definitely team history. Uh, and, and it's at, for a couple of weeks, it looked like potentially NFL history based on, on raw yardage, but, but still you're ending with a team that didn't do much to get better in the off season. And so didn't look better in the off season or I'm sorry, didn't look better during the season and they regressed to where they probably should have been last year were it not for uh, a couple of, uh, of close wins there uh, throughout the season. So uh, end of the year records, I think, uh, David, you ended up having one more win than me overall because we both would have predicted the Niners to lose yeah. and for the Seahawks to cover at this point. So I think you ended the year with one more win because I went out on a limb yeah, you started. And I said we were gonna get, started getting crazy there at the end, like predicting wins out of, out of nowhere. Like, um, I had to keep it interesting. And to be fair, the one that I did predict a win really was a game that where we shat the bed real late, and it should have totally been a win. So you could have seen how that would have been, uh, you know, a, a game that we could have uh, the game against Chicago that we should have won there. But you know, hey, what are you gonna do? <laughs> the formidable Matt Barkley. Uh, is definitely oh, a force to be reckoned with. So somebody on TV uh, today I, was talking about Matt, like Matt Barkley threw five interceptions this week. Uh, in case you missed that, um, and I heard somebody I forget it was on NFL Network. I forget what show it was or, or who was saying it, um, but was trying to like talk people into like Matt Barkley maybe being an answer. Um, and he and he was like including the performance last week where he threw five interceptions um, as like evidence for why the bears like should probably roll with him next year. Um, but I bet they threw that. Inter- I bet he threw those interceptions with heart. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's a real blue collar guy. He, you know, shows up early, leaves late. Um, sort of yep. thing. Yeah. Just real, real gym rat. That's <laughs> well, I think that that about does it for this week's edition of the show. We've got a lot. I mean, it's basically the off season at this point. It's, it's one last hurrah in Seattle. Uh, and then it's goodbye. Adios. Uh, and the off season begins anew. The place where we have hope. It is a new hope. Hope returns in uh, one week. That's one right. Hope returns in week. one week. Uh, a new hope. R.I.P. Carrie Fisher. Uh, so really, our off season cadence. It's. I mean, really, I think Black Monday changes everything. So what we're going to cover in the off season is Black Monday, potentially GM changes, coaching changes, whatever that looks like. We'll be here to cover it. And then we're going to really get into the aftermath of, of what that means. And if it is a new GM, we're going to talk about potential general manager candidates. And if it's not a new GM, we're going to talk about what Trent Balky should do as the current GM of the 49ers. We'll talk about free agency, the draft, and we're going to have a little fun this offseason and try and approach it as if we were the general manager, what we would do to improve this 49ers franchise, both from free agency and the draft. So that's pretty much what we're going to do in the offseason we switch to more of an every other week cadence uh, just because we have lives as well. And so we'll, we'll do our best to, to let you know when we're going to have the shows and when not. But we'll go more to an irregular every other week cadence going into the off season. But yeah, we've got one more week of watching this amazingly terrible franchise on Sundays. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, what, what are you looking forward to seeing this week against Seattle other than triple zeros on the clock? I mean, that's the, I'm actually looking forward to not watching it at all. Like, I, I might not watch this game. Um, 
I, I'll be busy during the day, like doing some some PFF stuff, so I won't get to watch it live uh, or anything like that. But I might just kind of, I might just pretend that the season's over right now and just like block out this final game um, um, for good. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, then I think that should be the call to action. This is the end. Hashtag this is the end. Uh, that's it. This is this is it. Um, I, I will be looking forward to watching the last game because even though this team sucks and it's terrible, I still like watching real life football. Uh, so I'm probably going to watch DeForest Buckner against that defense oh, against that offensive line because I want to chuckle a couple of times. Uh, and, I'm going to watch uh, teams that, that are better at football. I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, I will probably do that. That too. seems like I will probably fun. do that too. I'm going to watch uh, Green Bay Detroit because that's going to be. Uh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, that, that should be good. There's actually quite a few good games that uh, that'll be coming up this week. A lot of division games, a lot of, a lot of um, few with playoff implications there. So yeah, it should be fun. Well, thanks again for sticking with us throughout this entire wonderfully awesome season. Uh, we'll be here again next week, and we'll be here throughout the off season. And as always, go Niners. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.